Okay, if you have Bibles with you, open up to Gospel of John, chapter 15. Before I dive into the sermon today, I love the song John and Colin did, um, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, There's Freedom. I love that. Yeah, great song. Such an awesome song. I was sitting back there, and, and I'm watching Colby. He has this little, little helip- helicopter toy, right, where you spin it in your hands, it goes flying. I'm watching him play, and this guy's singing that song, and it reminds me of a story, the church we passed it before we came here. Uh, we arrived there, I think, in May of 2009, and we're there just a few weeks, and on Sunday morning, uh, not Sunday morning, during the week, I sensed the Lord say to me, bring bubbles to church on Sunday. And, um, and I didn't hesitate for a second. I'd heard God speak to me in the past. It sounded like him, and for me, Bubbles wasn't a big deal. I had no idea why God said to bring bubbles. He just said, bring bubbles to church on Sunday. And so during the week, Nadine and I went looking around, and we, we wound up at a party store. You ever see those little tubes, that kind of like little mini test tubes at a wedding, where and you take a stick out and you can have bubbles, like when the bride, instead of throwing rice nowadays, it's better to do bubbles, I guess. Anyway, this worked perfectly for my purposes. I was able to get a box of like 100 of these little tubes with bubbles. And so... We don't tell anybody about it. Church starts on Sunday morning, and I got the bubbles hidden away in my office, and uh, the worship team gets up, and they start doing worship, and I, I get the box of bubbles, give a bunch to Nadine, I take a bunch, and the first thing we do is we start giving that to kids. You give little kids bubbles, they don't need instructions, right? They know what to do with bubbles. You give them bubbles, that's fine. We start handing them to the adults, and they're like, like what am I supposed to do with this? Is, is there something significant here? Do I put it in my pocket? Do I hold it in my right hand and my left hand? What's going on? And then the parents who see the kids actually running around blowing bubbles now are freaking out. They grab it. Sit down. What are you doing, right? And so I just, I, but then they see, you know, the new pastor, he has bubbles. I'm blowing bubbles all over everybody. I work up to the worship team. I'm blowing <laughs> bubbles on them. Nobody's got a clue what's going on. And so the kids had lots of fun with bubbles, worship time ended, I'm doing my sermon, I'm about two-thirds of the way through my sermon, and I know that they're all waiting for, what is the profound, significant sermon illustration that has to do with bubbles today? And at one point I just stopped, I said, oh yeah, I said, about the bubbles, there was absolutely no point to the bubbles. (laughs) There was no point. We did bubbles because we could do bubbles. We can. And that was it. And so... I think that began the point where they used to, they would look at me strangely and think, I don't understand this guy. Why is he, why is he doing the things he does? Um, sometimes we do them just because we have the freedom, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Do we, do we have to have a reason for everything? I don't think so. Sometimes we just have the freedom to do it, and we do it. Now, I want you to know that I do have some internal guiding principles. I call them my personal ethos. And so our, these are things I've discovered. I've been on this spiritual journey for a while. I was remembering this morning, sometimes if you look, I sit back there and I'm scribbling all these notes because worship usually inspires me and then these thoughts come to me and stuff I should share with you guys. So I was remembering today that one of the very first theology books I ever purchased when you know this whole concept of Bible study became serious to me, the first the theological book I ever purchased was called The Unfolding Drama of, Redem- of Redemption. The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. Isn't that a great book? Entitled for a book by William Scroge. I still have that book. It's still on my bookshelf. 
And um, I've been going through my own personal unfolding drama of redemption. So have you. We're all on a journey. And so as this journey for me has unfolded, I've, I've noticed some touch points, some, some key points in the journey, things that have become significant to me, things that are valuable to me, that, that, that are part of who I am. They're values that I hold that no matter what, I'm, I refuse to violate them. I won't cross those lines. I just won't do it. And so, you know, mo- most of you guys know me. Some of you maybe don't. So I just briefly want to share that ethos with you before I dive into John 15 because it applies. Have you noticed as we've gone through the Gospel of John that I look at it a little bit differently than, well, differently than most of us have before? I'm not saying that makes me special or anything. It just makes me different. I've been looking at things differently. I've been looking at things differently than I have before, and I know that it's different than you have before because you're telling me. So why do I do that? Well, this is part of Tom Zawacki's unfolding drama of redemption. And so, you know, one of the thing, one of the driving elements, values, ethos for Tom, for me, is passion. I'm a passionate man. I I think most of the church has looked at passion and seen it as a dirty word. I think passion's wonderful. Now look, it's kind of like fire in a fireplace. It's kind of like fire in general. Fire is passion. I take fire and put it in the fireplace, it'll warm up the whole house. I've been to Tom and Jill's house. You got fire in that stove, it's going to warm up your whole house. You'll feel it as soon as you walk in the door. Now we take that same fire and put it on the floor in the living room, what's going to happen? You're going to burn that house down. Right? Passion in the right place can be, it can be wonderful. Right? Passion, fire in the fireplace is a good thing. So I'm, but I'm all in favor of passion. I think what the church has done for a long time is we just said passion is bad, and we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. I'm like, I want the good passion. So passion drives me. I want to love God passionately. I want to love people passionately. I, it's so important to me. I tattooed the Hebrew word for passion on my arm. Passion is important to me. Another driving principle is freedom. And I, I tattooed that one on my right arm. And, and I want to live in the fullness of the freedom that's rightly mine in Christ Jesus. I think he came to set us free. And if you look at the context, when Paul writes those words in Galatians chapter 5, the freedom he's talking about is religious freedom. That's the very issue. Not so much political or national, but religious freedom. God came to set us free from I want to live free. I personally want to live free. And, and as long as God gives me the, the privilege to, to shepherd a congregation, I want to foster freedom in you. I don't want to limit freedom. I want to do it. I resist it at every turn. So back to that church where I did the bubbles. I'll give you an example. So I'm there a few weeks and... And apparently, before I got there, this was a place that had some very rigid rules and regulations. And without even knowing it, I'm just being me, doing what I do. I'm, I'm breaking through some barriers. I'll give you an example. So we had our own building, and the, the office, the, the pastor's office, had a solid wood door. And one of the things I wanted changed when I first got there was that they would take that door off and please put a door with glass in it. I wanted, it, I wanted people to be able to see through the door. And they were like, fine, yeah, it's a great idea. And I gave them my reasons for it. I wanted there to be transparency. And so Sunday morning comes, and after you know, 10 years or longer, 
suddenly there's a new door on the pastor's office. And not only was the door see-through, the door was open. It was unlocked. And so we'd have people, I'd have people coming right to the threshold of the door, and they wouldn't step in. Because that door had always been closed, nobody was allowed in there. I don't know why, but that's how they did things before I got there. Now the door's open, and people would stand, and they'd lean in and kind of look. And I'd say, come on in. They're like, oh, no, I can't do that. And I'm like, oh, yes, you can. <laughs> Just come on in. You're free to, to walk into this, to this office. Right? And so the bubbles, the door thing, there was, was a list of few things, and so the elders had to come speak to me. And, <laughs> and so the elders came to speak to me. And uh, they wanted me to tell people that there was such and such a thing that they weren't allowed to do. It was, an, it was an old rule. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and uh, they're like, why? I said, look, it's kind of like this. If I make the rule, it's like, I, I have to create the stop sign. I have to install the stop sign. I have to monitor the stop sign. I have to capture the violators of the stop sign. I have to punish the violators of the stop sign. I said, that's a lot of work I don't want to do. It's too much for me. I said, how about we do this instead? How about if we take people to the intersection and I say to them, look, this could be a dangerous intersection. My strong encouragement to you is that you look both ways before you cross the street. And then if you decide to cross the street, go ahead and cross. But know this. If you get hit by a truck crossing the street, come back to me and I will love you back to health. Okay? And then we'll talk about We'll talk about the intersection. How's that sound? And uh, so I said this to the elders, and they looked at me and said, you don't think the way we do. <laughs> nope, I don't think the way you do. I said, the benefit of this is now they own their spiritual journey. I don't have to control them. I don't have to limit their freedom. And they can learn to walk with God, to cross whatever streets they want to cross. I don't want to violate people's freedom. So that's, that's another driving principle for me. The other is the Holy Spirit. I, you've heard me say this before, I want to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that it was, that it was intentional, that it's biblical, that it's godly, that he would give us the Holy Spirit. Now, if I can have God living inside of me, that ought to change things. And if I understand the Word of God, especially Paul's writings in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, there are gifts that are part of that. And they're for the benefit of all. They ought to be in operation. They ought to not be hidden away in the closet. But they ought to be functioning in our lives, in our midst. I want to live that supernatural life. You know what I've discovered about me since I was a little kid? My favorite superhero as a kid was Superman. I loved Superman. We lived in Brooklyn, New York when I was a little, little kid, like five years old. Five-story walk-up. My mother was awesome. She, if you grow up in the city, maybe this makes sense to you. We didn't grow up in a country like here. So my mother wanted to take us to go fly a kite. So what do we do? We go up to the roof of this five-story walk-up. And she had this kite that was clear plastic and had Superman painted on it. So when it was up in the sky, you know what it looks like from far away? It looks like Superman flying in the sky. I thought that was the coolest thing in the whole world. I wanted to be Superman. I've always been fascinated by superpowers. I love movies with superpowers. I like TV shows with superpowers. I want to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to help other people do the same. And I'm thinking, well, why should we settle for any less? That's another one of my driving principles. And the fourth, along with 
passion and freedom and the Holy Spirit is destiny. I feel like God's given me a destiny. I want to fulfill my God-given destiny. I want to help other people do theirs, fulfill theirs. And I know a huge part of that destiny is, is intimate relationship with God. So I want to help people do that. That's part of my ethos. I feel like God's called me to do three things. And it's inspired from Jesus' reading Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. I feel like God's, God has called me <laughs> to tell people good news. To tell people the good news of the Father's love for them. Because I think too much of the church has, has bad news. I want to tell them good news. I don't think we need any more hellfire and brimstone messages. I think most of you are already acutely aware of what your sin is. What you need is the solution. You need the, the fix. You need the rescue. You need the savior. You need to know there's a God who loves you. I want to tell people good, I want to tell people good news. I don't want to tell them bad news. So most of the things I'll share with you will be good news. That's what I feel like he's called me to do. The other thing I feel like God's called me to do is to open up blind eyes. And I'm talking about blind spiritual eyes. And I think it's to help people see the truth of who God is and, and be free by that. But also help open up blind spiritual eyes to help people be able to see in the spirit. Because seeing, see your gift is one of my gifts. There's pastoral prophetic gifts in me. And usually the way the prophetic side works is that I see stuff. God, God speaks to me in pictures. might go back to the Superman comic book things when I was a kid. I loved the pictures. Didn't like reading so much, but I loved the pictures. God's, God hasn't taught me to speak his language. He's showed me that he speaks my language. So he speaks to me in pictures. I love the colorful pictures. So I want to help open blind spiritual eyes. And the last thing I want to do is set people free. And what I want to set them free from is religious rules, regulations, and traditions of men. Because that's not why we that's not why Jesus came. He came so that we could have a relationship with him. So these are my guiding principles. This is my personal ethos. These are my values, my calling. And and, it's, and these are the things I've, I've discovered about myself and what God's doing to me on this, I don't know, almost 40-year journey that I've been on. And so, as I've been on this journey, it's changed how I see things. I'm hoping it's maturity and growth, but I've evolved as a believer. And when I look at scriptures now, I see them differently today than I did 40 years ago. Isn't that a good thing? Right? Wouldn't it be a horrible thing to say that I believe everything today the exact same way I did the first day I came to Jesus? That, to me, sounds like it's stagnant and it's, and it's, um, it's not life. It's, there's no growth there. So I've been growing and evolving, and these principles impact me, and they change how I look at the Scripture. That's, that's why... When I take a look at certain texts, it may sound different than other messages you've heard before. Now look, I think I'm right. Of course I think I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I'd change it, and then I would still think I was right. That's kind of how it works, right? But this I know. I've been wrong before. I could be wrong again. I don't think so but on this, but I could be. That's being honest. So just check it for yourself. Do your own study. If you think what I'm teaching isn't right... Well, then go find out for yourself. You're a grown-up. I'm not putting up a stop sign. 
I'm encouraging you, look both ways before you cross the street. And if as you cross the street you get hit by a truck, come back, talk to me. I love talk to you. Nadine will make coffee, it'll be good. And I'll love on you. I'll probably talk too much, but I'll love on you. So if, you're, if you have John chapter 15 open, let me jump into that. We're working our way through John. Uh, we're in chapter 15. The setting is Jesus' meeting with his closest friends. It's just prior to his arrest and crucifixion. Last week, we looked at the classic vine and branches text in John 15, at the beginning of John 15. And we took a look at it from the Passion Translation. If you haven't used the Passion Translation yet, check it out. I think it's awesome. Um, so today we'll pick up Jesus' monologue beginning of verse 9 and we'll go through verse uh, 17. Let's begin at verses 9 to 11. This is Jesus speaking. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Good stuff. Let's just be clear for a second. What commands are being referred to here? Is it the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20? Is it the 613, get that right, 613 commands of the Mosaic Law. No, it's ne neither of these are what Jesus is referring to when he uses the word commands. Now keep in mind, as we study the scripture, it's broken down for us into chapters and verses. For Jesus and his disciples, this is just an ongoing conversation since chapter 13. In chapter 13, Jesus makes this profound statement. And he gives... His disciples, not an additional commandment. He gives them a new command to replace the old command. He gives them a new command to replace the old. He's not adding to the list. He's replacing the list. One that seemed, at the time, if you read it in the context of John 13, the disciples just overlook what Jesus is saying here. They're kind of distracted by the fact that Jesus announced he was going away. But this is what he said. John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. It's a game changer, guys. Nothing's the same. Jesus came to establish a new covenant between God and humanity. One that's no longer based upon performance, but one that's based upon relationship. 2,000 years later, as believers, we still struggle with this transition. We are so conditioned, we are so locked into performance that when we read this text and we see the, we see the buzzword command, we're not thinking John 13, we're thinking Exodus 20. And that's a mistake. I mean, we struggle so much that even as I read these verses, John 15, verses 9 to 11, we, we ignore verse 9 and verse 11 in our performance mindset. We go straight to verse 10, and we completely forget verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13. All we see is the word command. We're thinking, oh, I have to keep this command. If I want to remain in his love, 
then I have to measure up. I have to do such and such. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a series of questions. What does God need? What does God need? This omnipotent, all-powerful God. What does he need? The one who exercises total dominion over the entire universe. The one who, with but a word, created everything out of nothing. That kind of powerful God. What does he need? How about the, the, our omnipresent God? The one who's ever-present, all times, all places, everywhere in the universe, simultaneously. What does that God need? How about the omniscient, all-knowing God? The actual God who knows everything about everyone and everything. The one who knows the past, the present, and the future. The God who could tell me the entire history of the spot on the ground that, I, that I'm occupying at this very moment. From creation till now, he could, he could tell me the entire history of everything that's taken place in this square little patch that I, that I occupy right now. From the moment of creation to now, to the end of time, he could tell me everything that's taken place here. What does that God need? The immutable God. The one who is never changing. The one, Scripture says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that God Need. How about the eternal and infinite God? The limitless God. The one who's not subject to the limitations of humanity or creation. The God who exists forever, has no beginning and no end. The one who's always existed in the same way, fully and completely God. What does that God need? This self-existent, self-sufficient, God of all wisdom, our God, your God, my God, the one who is himself the pure essence of love and mercy and grace and faithfulness and freedom and justice and truth. What does that God need? I'll tell you what, he doesn't need a thing. He doesn't need anything. Our God needs absolutely nothing from us. Nothing. There's no lack in him. There's no void in him that we can enter into and make it more complete. He's entirely complete. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our energy. He does not need our money. Now, this church, if it's going to continue to exist, it needs your time, your energy, and your money. God, he doesn't need any of that. Let me mess you up here a little bit. He doesn't even need your obedience. Heresy. He doesn't need it. Why? Because he's been eternally self-sufficient. He needs nothing. But he wants something. He wants Something. He wants something that's priceless and precious. And what he wants is you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He desperately wants your love. He wants loving, intimate friendship with you. And he's wanted it enough to die for it. He needs nothing. But he has a, a deep, passionate want. 
and what he wants is you. Verse 9 tells us, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. I love this word, remain. Different translations use different words to define it. Some say, <clears throat> instead of remain, some say stay in my love. Some say abide or continue or tarry or dwell. I like the word dwell. Some say stand. <clears throat> One translation has it continue to, be, continue to be present in my love. Another one says, do not depart from my love. However you read it, Jesus is saying here, stay in the love. Stay, stay in love. The love I have shared with the Father, the love I've shared with you, dwell, abide, stand permanently in that love. Verse 10, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. In other words, please try and get this. If you, com if you, com if you keep my love command, if you, if you keep my command to love, you'll remain in my love. It's all about love. It's, it's not about the command. It's about what he told us to do. And what he told us to do is love. You'll, if you keep my command to love, you'll remain in love. The Passion Translation says it this way. Verse 10 it says, I love each of you with the same love that the Father has, loves me. Let my love nourish your hearts. Isn't that good? Let my love nourish your hearts. If you keep my commands, you will live in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands. For I am nourished and empowered by his love. Guys, it's, if, Jesus, <clears throat> if Jesus was nourished and empowered by the Father's love, how much more so for you and me? Anybody here ever been on a diet? Right. It doesn't look it, but I've actually tried it a few times. Right. Sometimes I can't make it past lunch. But when, but when I'm nourished and empowered by his love, it's amazing what I can do. Even go on a diet. Guys, we've been invited into this infinite circle of perfect love. The, the love that's shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit. We've been invited into that relationship. <clears throat> the Father for the Son, the Son for us, our love for each other, empowered by the Holy Spirit to love God in return. This isn't some burden that we're to perfectly perform. It's not. When he says this, it's not a burden for us to perfectly perform. It's an absolute joy and delight. What it is, it's a celebration of love. This is what he calls us to. And Jesus makes it perfectly clear in the next verse, in verse 11, he says, I have told you this. Why? So that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. What sounds more joyful, keeping commands or participating in a circle of perfect love? Which one sounds joyful to you? Right? He's not talking about continuing to keep the Mosaic law. If that was the case, he never would have had to come. That was already in place. He's doing a new thing. And it's a joyful thing. So just in case there's any confusion still concerning the commands we're to keep, Jesus reminds us in the very next verse of verse 12. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I've loved you. That's the command. So that would be crystal clear. I really don't think I'm reading something other into the text. I'm just seeing it now for the first time. 
This is what's happened to me, and I think it's happened maybe to some of you guys. I get blinded by the word command, and I completely ignore the word love. I think that's what happened to me in my religious mindset. I've seen things I haven't seen before. <clears throat> First, God loves us. He sets the pattern. He's the model, the example. Then we're empowered by his love to love one another and to love God in return. John wrote about it in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. It starts with him. So can you see this? Can you see that it's relational and it's not performance? Boy, I really want you to get that. So <clears throat> we had um, Wayne Jacobson here um, a few weeks ago. It was a great time with him, and I made a new friend uh, since then. Um, and uh, on his Facebook page, he put this quote up today by uh, Leonard Sweet. And I thought, wow, what a great quote. Seems to really fit into the, today's message. Leonard Sweet is an author. This is from his book, The Well-Played Life. This is what he writes. After 500 years, the Protestant work ethic has not made us better disciples, only weary and cranky human beings struggling in vain to snag the unattainable dangling carrot that we've named assurance, or being driven forward by the damning stick of eternity, whether stick or carrot, the donkey's dilemma is the same. Despite reformers such as Luther, Wesley, and Huss, and others who emphasize justification by faith alone, we still would rather think of ways of keeping ourselves in line rather than keeping ourselves in love. How can we make the continental shift from finding our assurance not as attainment, but as atonement. How can we find the assurance that comes from, that comes not from extreme productivity, as one recent book title has it, but from trusting in the veracity of faith and the, fer and the ferocity of God's love? Isn't that good? That's a good quote. If you want to see that quote again, I reposted it to my Facebook page. It'll probably make it to my 273-page list, list of quotes. That's a good one. Now, some great authors, in my opinion, like Phyllis Tickle, Wayne Jacobson, Leonard Sweet, the author Burke, they, they've written about what they see as 500-year cycles in the church and how we've come, we're coming. We're in the midst of the end of one cycle and the beginning of another. Things are changing. Things are changing. I think that there's, there's a profound shift taking place from performance-based Christianity to loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. I think that's the shift. It's, a, it's at least one significant element of it. Jesus continues to emphasize relationship over performance in the following verses. I mean, he makes it very clear in verses 13 and 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's, for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I've learned from my father, 
I've made known to you. Friends, not servants. Relationship, not performance. Strong, defining friends, Strong uses uh, the example of the bridegroom's friend. A friend who, who would be close, who would be dear. This would be a loved friend. The guy who stands up with you on, on the sig most significant day of your life. This is the meaning behind the word friend that Jesus uses here. Someone you know. Someone you trust. Someone you respect. Not a servant. Far from. A servant. Vine's Dictionary defines servant as a slave. And goes on to say that originally it referred to the lowest term in the scale of servitude. The lowest slave among slaves. Even servant. And we've, we've kind of, we've you know, bedazzled the word servant to make it sound better. What's really being used here is the word slavery. He says, I want friends. I don't want slaves. I, I want friendship with humanity. I don't want little robots. I don't want subjects who have to obey me because if they don't, they get the whip. I want friends. He calls them friends, not slaves. <clears throat> and so when we hear the word servant, you know, we're not talking about some high-class butler or some you know, executive personal assistant. This word here means slavery. God doesn't want slaves. He wants friends. And to prove it, he's willing to lay down his life for them and for us. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. This is what Jesus says to them. Guys, I'm telling you, God is so much better than we ever thought he was. We have a really good God. Now, growing up in Brooklyn, as told the story about flying kites on the roof. Got a little bit older, we moved to a different neighborhood. <clears throat> we didn't play organized sports like it is today, you know, on, on fields that were specially built and with all kind of equipment and uniforms. We didn't have any of that. We were too poor. We just played in the streets. We, all, we played all street sports growing up in Brooklyn. We played stickball. It kind of looks something like that picture. And so we played stickball. The manhole cover in the middle of the street, that was home base. The Mets won last night. I know you guys are all excited. I stayed up till midnight watching. I can remember listening. I can remember playing stickball on the street with my friends as we had our little AM radio as loud as we could listening to the 69 Mets play the World Series. Anyway, stickball on the street. The manhole cover was home base. The car bumper on the right was first. Another manhole cover was second. Car bumper on this side was third. And back to the home plate. We just we found a way to play baseball in the street. And we would use, <clears throat> there were two rubber balls that we would use as a kid. One was called a Spalding, definitely the better of the two. The other was called a Pinky. And a Pinky was more like a spongy kind of ball. And it didn't have as much bounce to it. They were cheaper usually, and they lasted longer. But the Spalding, if you're going to play stickball in Brooklyn, you want the Spalding. We'd play football in the street. And usually like street lampposts to street lampposts, well, that's how we knew where the end zones were, and now that was a touchdown. And we played, anybody ever hear a wiffle ball? Is that like a uniquely, some of you guys heard a wiffle ball, right? Got a ball, it's got holes in it on one side. Boy, you could really make that thing swoop and curve. We play, we play wiffle ball. My brothers and I, we play all the time. Had a yellow, plastic yellow bat. We played stoop ball. This might be uniquely Brooklyn. There were outside steps. 
that led to the second story of the house. And so what we do is we take the ball and we bounce it off the steps. And the objective was if you can hit the point of the step, boy, you can really get that ball to fly far. If you can get it to fly all the way across the street to the other side, that was a home run. Right? And then based on any bounces you had, it was a single or a double, it was all kind of rules, but it was Spalding and Stu. And we played, it was called Stu Ball. We played other games. Anybody here with Johnny on a Pony? That was a crazy game. I mean, talk about bodily injury, right? So one guy would stand either against the fire hydrant or against the wall, and then the others would bend over and they'd kind of make like this chain of bodies. So it'd be four or five of us all bent over, almost kind of like making a shelf. And then the other team would come and they'd run and they'd jump on the backs of the other kids until it was this big pile. And, and if they could hold you, they won. If you could make them collapse, uh, you won. That's one of the few games we played in my neighborhood where the fat kid, you always won the fat kid on your side, right? <laughs> I declare war, well, other street games. This is in my, in my neighborhood, we played all kinds of street games, but they all began the same. All the games began the same. They began with choosing sides. There were two captains. And usually it was the two best, the two strongest, the fastest, whatever, the two best guys. We'd flip a coin to see who would choose teammates first. Or we'd do rock, paper, scissors, something like that. Except for when it was stickball. We had a whole different procedure when we played stickball. There was a stickball bat, which was nothing much more than a mop hand. And so the, there are two captains there, and everybody's gathered around to see who's going to be on which side. And so one captain would take the bat, and he would toss it to the other. And the objective was to grab the bat as closest to the top as you can. Because if there was any space left, then they would come and put their hand on top of yours and your hand on top of them to see who had the highest. And if there was a little nub just sticking out the top after you did the hand over hand thing, you could take your fingers and claw the top of it. And, but even that, we, there was always more rules. And so you're standing there and you've just got a fingertip grip with this, with this bat. Now the other guy, if he kicks it out of your hand, he gets first. He gets one good kick. If he doesn't kick it out, you got, you got the stick, you get to pick first. These are, this is how we decided to choose. And so we would go through the list, the fastest, the best, the strongest. They, they were always picked first. and always kind of felt good to be one of the first people chosen. And if you were the last person chosen, it felt pretty crummy. It was just the way, it was just the way we did things. We played lots of sports, and this is how we chose. Get this. Get this. Jesus chose you. He picked you. Jesus picked you. Verses 16 and 17. Final verses today. You did not choose me, he says. I, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. He picked you. He picked me. Even when we ran from him, he picked us. When we were lost in our selfishness and our sin, he picked us. St. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we were perfect. He didn't pick us because we were the best, the strongest, the fastest. He picked us because that's how he is. Because he loved us. 
Oh, I could take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, oh, look, look at who you were when you were called. Not many of you were of noble birth. It goes on to say that God chose the things that are not to nullify the things that are. I've had the Lord tell me privately, he said, Tom, I've, I've not called you for your strengths. He says, I've called you for your weaknesses. I still don't understand that. But I know he's called me. He picked me. Guys, he's so much better than we think he is. Before we even knew he existed, he chose us. Isn't that amazing? The limitless, the all-powerful God of the universe picked you and he picked me. The all-knowing God, he knew me. He knows everything about me. Every good thing I would do, every crummy thing I would do. And still he picked me. And he picked us so that we might be fruitful. Now, we talked about fruit last week. How is fruit produced? Is it hard work? Is it performance? Is it human effort? No. Fruit is the product of intimacy. That's how fruit is born. Fruit is the product of love. And not just any fruit. But God appointed lasting fruit. And get this, I love this. The Greek word here used for fruit that will last, Greek word for last, in verse 16, is the exact same Greek word used for remain in verse 9, where Jesus says, now remain in my love. Meaning, stay, abide, continue, tarry, dwell, stand, continue to be present, and do not depart. In other words, remain in my love, and the fruit of that love will be lasting fruit. I don't think it's any mistake that the same word is used twice there. And just in case, even after all this, there's still some confusion over the whole relationship versus performance thing, Jesus ends verse 17 with this reminder. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray. If I can have John and Colin come back up. Let's pray. Why don't you guys stand? If you will. Oh, God. Lord, would you set us free? Would you set us fully free? Set us free from the lies of the enemy. Set us free from performance-based Christianity. Set us free into the love relationship that you've always wanted with us. That was your entire objective and purpose from the very beginning. Set us free into that relationship. Lord, set us free from slavery into friendship. Set us free from a slavery mindset into a friendship mindset. Oh, God, help us remain in your love. And may we see the lasting fruit of your love in our lives. Oh, God, make it so. So these guys lead us in prayer uh, in the final song. If you need prayer, come forward this morning. If, if you still battle with a performance-based Christianity, boy, I'd be delighted to pray for you. If you have a desire for friendship over slavery in your relationship with Jesus and need prayer for that, come forward we'll pray for you. If you need anything today, any prayer requests whatsoever, circumstance in your life, something physical, something other, come on down. We'll be happy to pray for you as we end the service. Thank you.